sun is hot and that old clock is moving slow And so am I Workday passes like molasses in wintertime But it's July I'm getting paid by the hour and older by the minute My boss just pushed me over the limit I'd like to call him something I think I'll just call it a day Welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In this episode, I'll begin looking at John Barleycorn or Alcoholic Memoirs by Jack London. This is one of the earlier alcoholic memoirs that didn't come down to simply being a morality tale about redemption. Um, those were quite common, even back to the, like the 18th century. These stories of people who kind of you know, have fallen off the wagon and get re- restored by the power of Christ or whatever. These were these were the kind of stories that were you know popular. Maybe the temperance movement, right? This is a much more difficult work than those, and one that one because it doesn't paint John Barleycorn alcohol as as a villain, and in a way he does that, but it's a very complex kind of villainy. And Jack London's relationship with alcohol is very complex. It changes over the course of the life. It's not one of redemption, of overcoming alcoholism. It's it's one that even at times celebrates what alcohol means to a man's life, a young man's life in America. Yet, at the same time, it's very critical of some of the consequences of it. And then in the second half of the novel in particular, how he's critical of how alcohol affects people's worldview and perspective, even even their philosophy. So it's a very complex tale, and in, in this sense, I really think it's useful to read by you know for anyone who really wants a different take on alcoholism. This isn't just like self berating about how you know I was made a slave by by alcohol. In fact, some people who maybe have gone through addiction, you know, might be struck by the fact that Jack London really often insists, for most of the book actually insists that he wasn't an addict. And someone else may look at that and say, what are you talking about? You obviously were an addict. But he denies it. And he, he comes to a sort of confession later in the novel that he started to shift towards alcoholism and addiction. But even then, it's he qualifies it in ways. He... Now, some may look at this and say he's simply, I guess, justifying his addiction. Um, And he spends most of the novel, in a sense, explaining why he drank and in what social context and for what reasons. And in that sense, he maybe he is doing a bit of self-justification. But I'll leave that for most readers or listeners to think about for themselves. The temperance movement certainly had plenty of literature on alcoholism, but it was very typically propaganda. It, it, it presented the alcohol as fallen and needing salvation. Jack London here is doing something very special in looking at the importance of alcohol, not only to him as an individual, uh, but in his upbringing. I mean, he, he sort of says he wouldn't be the person he turned out to be if not for alcohol. Uh, you know, he, he's, not, he's not like a hippie thinking like he needed chemical boosts to be creative. He, d- he doesn't get that at all. Even at the end when he talks about the white logic, which I'll get to probably in the next episode, it's not something that alcohol fully creates. It's it's more that alcohol helped him see this so-called white logic. So it's not that, like, you know, 
affecting the mind through chemicals is, is making him more creative or a better writer. In fact, he, he insists that he couldn't write while he was drinking. So it's, it's not that. And he's, he doesn't see it as a good thing. It's just it's a very complex and fascinating um, examination of, of alcohol. So, um, what to say? Well, I don't know. I, I, I'm trying to think of how to what to say here. Um, I'm sure from many outside points of view, and maybe even from clinical points of view, I drink way too much, and I I consume way too much alcohol, and I make it a bigger part of my life than I probably should. I mean, I I'm probably with Jack London here, and that I would hesitate to call myself an alcoholic. Um, but it's it's something that you know has has bothered a few people in my life from time to time, and it's something that that even I think about once in a while. So I'm not fully indifferent to how Jack London um, presents it, and, and in some ways, there's some moments in this book that really ring true to me and feel quite uh, true to life. Now, Jack London's main point in John Barleycorn, at least in the first half, and I think you can sort of divide this book into two parts, the first part being more about what I'm going to talk about now, and the second part, which I'll look at in the next episode, which is really more about the meaning of life and the relationship of alcohol to life and a well-lived life and and almost like what its place in the philosophy of finding meaning in one's life. So that kind of goes in the second in a different direction. The first part is more of a standard memoir. Um, in fact, he does call it alcoholic memoir. So as much as he disputes that he is addicted for much of the novel, he does call this alcoholic memoir. So he uses the term alcoholic in the in the title. But anyways, his his main point in the first half of the of the book is that drinking alcohol is a primarily a social event. But over the course of his life, it would play a bigger role outside of social life. But this was quite late in his life. And I remember Jack London died quite young. So had he lived to be 60 or 70, who knows what kind of drinker he would have been. And so, But for much of his working life and even much of his, his life as a writer, he denies that like alcohol really controlled him. Um, but that was mostly a social event. It was part of social life. And it was part of social life, particularly for men in America. But it does become more destructive over on, but its destruction is very much the about bad ideas. He doesn't talk that much about the health consequences of, of alcohol. He doesn't talk much about the personal relationships and how they're affected by alcohol. Like the kind of things you might expect in polemics against alcohol, he doesn't really get into. When he does look at the, really the dark side of it, it's it's more that it's the it's not even that it's making him do bad things. It's it's making him have toxic thoughts. And again, that's something I'll be reserved for the next time. But here I want to focus on what he says about alcohol as a, as a social glue. Now, he comes off as anti-drink, but even though at the end of the novel, uh, end of the book, I, I guess it's some of it might be somewhat fictionalized, but I'll just try to call it a book, autobiographical. By the end, he does say, like, he is going to go through life with drink in hand, Yet he's hostile to John Barleycorn, to alcohol. And he starts the novel saying, I hope women get the vote because they'll vote temperance laws. It's in a very open-minded anti-drink stance that appreciates what drinking has meant to him throughout his life. But 
even through everything, he resolves to take drink from time to time at the end of the book, right? So it's 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 very complex. It's hard to sum up, and this may make some people who want to read this as a as a guide to overcoming addiction a bit frustrated, because that's not what this book is. It's 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 partially a memoir of his early life. It's partially a, a kind of a discourse about what alcohol means to working class communities in the United States. It's partially about his relationships with other people, and it's partially about his philosophy of life. So. It's not a straight-up tale of, of redemption or anything like that, if that's what you're looking for. Now, it is mostly autobiographical. Uh, it's hard to know what he exaggerated or developed on, but I will take everything he writes here as autobiographical. That's how most people will probably read it. Um, now, like Wikipedia calls this a, like an autobiographical novel or something like that. Um, suggesting that much of it is fictionalized or exaggerated or in you know and to a degree maybe but I'm still gonna take it mostly as nonfiction right so uh, now that was a bit jumbled and didn't come off as clearly as I hoped I but anyways let's let's go into this book uh, from right away he talks about drink as as part of society or as part of social relations he says, I sketched my first contacts with alcohol, told of my first intoxications and revulsions, and pointed out always the one thing that in the end never had won me over, namely the accessibility of alcohol. Not only had it always been accessible, but every interest in my developing life had drawn me to it. A newsboy on the streets, a sailor, a miner, a wanderer in far lands, always where men came together to exchange ideas or to laugh or boast and dare or to relax, to forget the dull toil of tiresome nights and days. Always they came together over alcohol. The saloon was a place of congregation. Men gathered to it as primitive men gather on the fire of the squanting place or the fire at the mouth of the cave. Now London begins his account with the discussion with his, his, his then wife, or I guess his first wife, Charmaine. I think that's how it's pronounced. C-H-A-R-M-I-A-N. It's not a name I've, I've come across in other contexts for a... But, okay, let's say Charmaine. He's talking about his wife, Charmaine, about the vote for women's suffrage. He, now, he actually says he supports women's suffrage because he thinks that women will vote for temperance. And we want to maybe think a little bit about what, you know, to a degree he's really denying or ignoring women who drink. And he doesn't really say much about them. And he doesn't really seem to know much about that. He's talking about men drinking in this book women drinking is after in fact he seems to think women don't drink women are anti-drink and you know and i'm not sure that's true i know in many social contexts social historical context women were the makers of, of beer and i've heard theories that even women may have pioneered even agriculture as a way to produce the grains needed to brew beer which they figured out first and, I, and in south africa for instance when the men went to work on the mines many women you know, started brewing beer as a way to make money. Uh, it's not clear how much they drank, but the idea that women would instantly get rid of alcohol if they could vote, maybe in early 20th century America with all the temperance movement going on, but I don't know if that's a historical truth for all women, that they, they would have been anti-drink. Okay, so after he sets this up, and then he says, that, you know, he was encouraged to write this memoir, and then he goes off and, and writes it. It's written in 1913, by the way, so it's quite late in his life. Now, he breaks up drunkards between those who get drunk in the head and those who get drunk in the body. Now, London claims to be the former. 
so the guys who get drunk in the body are like the really the people who get inebriated, who stumble, who babble. And he's got this very famous metaphor here. Quote, There are, broadly speaking, two types of drinkers. There is the man whom we all know, stupid, unimaginative, whose brain is bent numbly by numb maggots, who walks generously with widespread tentative legs, falls frequently in the gutter, and who sees in the extremity of his ecstasy blue mice and pink elephants. This is the type that gives rise to jokes in the funny pages. The other type of drinker has imagination, vision. Even when, mo he, when mostly pleasantly jingled, he walks straight and naturally, never staggers nor falls, but knows just where he is and what he's doing. It is not of the body, but the brain that is drunken. He may bubble with wit or expand with good friendship, or he may see intellectual specters and phantoms that are cosmic and logical, and that take the form of syllogisms. End quote. So here he might confess a little bit that alcohol can create a creative spark. I, I think he would agree that this is a false reality that's being presented um, to these people because he tries to actually avoid drinking while, while working, as he says later in the book. Now, I think by and large, London's interested in the people who get drunk in the mind. He doesn't really care about the people who get drunk in the body. He claims not to get drunk in the mind, so he wouldn't really know much about it. And his later, his very famous passages at the end of this novel, the final five chapters, which really make this a great work of literature, the stuff on the white logic, that's the people who get drunk in the head. That's not the average stumbling, drunk in the gutter kind of guy. At least in, um, at least in London's division of these two. Now, I don't know if there's any re reality to this division. I mean, people probably all like to think that they're, they're the ones who get drunk in the head, not in the body. You know, chemically or the physiology of, of alcoholism, I don't know if there's distinction really exists, but London thinks it does. Well, then he, after doing this, he goes through his early life with drink over several chapters. The ma major theme of the first half of the book is the role of drink in men's sociability. He repeats a couple things over and over again. It's really fun to read. It's, it's really a memoir of his early life, and it's a great joy to read. But he's very repetitive, and it comes off as a bit repetitive because he seems to be always talking about he's at work, he's with these men, he drinks, blah, blah, blah. But one thing he repeats a lot is that he never liked alcohol, the taste or the experience of drinking it. Right Now, later in the novel, it's kind of humorous, I thought. Later in the novel, when he starts to really become an addict, later in the book, when he starts to confess to becoming an addict, it's cocktails. Right, and it, it's there's what they're drinking here is like beer and straight up whiskey, and I wonder. It sounds almost like that he needed the chaser to really get fully hooked on on alcohol, because he always talks about how he doesn't like the taste of it, even as a young man, even as a boy. His first drink he says was at five. But the second thing he says is that drinking was almost always a social necessity for him, and he never drank when he wasn't with people and not in a social context. John Barleycorn, alcohol. And I actually don't know the origin of this, this, this term, John Barleycorn, for drink. I may have not even heard it before I, I read this novel. The first time I read it, I keep saying novel, this book. The first time I read it was probably 10 years ago, but I don't know if I heard the term John Barleycorn before for it. Um, but he, he, it's always a social experience, and the saloons are always open to him, he said. I like saloons. Especially, I like the San Francisco saloons. And here he's writing when he's like uh, like 10 or 11. They are the most delicious dainties for the taking. Strange breads and crackers, cheese, sausage, sardines, wonderful foods I've never seen on our meager home table. And once I remembered a barkeeper sweeping me 
a sweet temperance drink of syrup and soda water. My father did not pay for it. It was the bartender's kitsch treat, and he became my ideal of a good, kind man. I dreamed day, I dreamed daydreams of him for years. Although I was seven years old at the time, okay, seven, I can see him now with undiminished clearness, though I never laid eyes on him except that one time. So as a young person, he's in saloons, right? So it's always from very young age, a place he could be, right? And even me growing up in Wisconsin, where this is a kind of a common experience too. Don't I mean, my dad didn't take me to bars too often, but I did go to his bowling games, right? So I was always at a once a week for at least in the winters. I was always in bowling alleys, right? And I remember, um, you know, playing video games and things, sitting at bars from time to time. So. You know, in that sense, I was around people drinking from a very young age in social events. It was usually my family. In that case, now Jack London here is in a much broader social environment in the, the community saloons and around other working men. But it was really when London started to work in the ports as an oyster pirate that drinking became a bigger part of his life. In fact, by drinking, London proves his masculinity to the community. It was through drink that he learned the rules of sharing and treating and other social rituals. This is not to say it was all good. London is clear that drinking inhibits morality and leads to bad choices. But these bad choices were apparently also part of the masculine community he was a part of. So they would get laughed off or they'd be kind of an inside joke or there'd be something that was kind of accepted or, you know, yeah, it's humorous, it's hilarious, it's silly that you did that, but that's just what men when they get drunk do. Right. It's like spend you spend the night in the drunk tank. You know, we all do that at some point. So it becomes part of part of that community solidarity. Now, while in a ship, because he's he's an oyster pirate, London drank a lot, but he never became a habitual drinker. He says drink was a product of a social needs, not a physical need yet. And he is making a distinction between these two. Um, but drinking is also really part of. A kind of a camaraderie almost. There's a long discussion he has where he's drinking with an older sort of sailor, and the guy keeps buying drinks for them, and and London wonders why he keeps being right buying drinks, and then London finally realizes that he's supposed to buy one for everyone. He he gets he you know he it's kind of like almost you you pay what you can into it, and that means you sometimes buy rounds, and so he figured that out and he bought the rounds, and this was like a. An, wake-up call for him this was something he he started to learn what drinking was about that he didn't realize before that it's not just a treat it's not a gift from the older sailor to him it's actually something between men that that are shared now when he finally broke free of the life at the sea as an oyster pirate the heavy drinking did not really go with him and it suggests again that this is not a habit and this is going to be a common theme throughout really the first two-thirds of the book is that it's not becoming a habit so the first major argument of the novel and the focus of what I want to say in this episode is that drinking for London is tied up into masculinity, into growing up and into social ability. But he also says that this is the great evil of alcohol. On page 999, he talks about how it hijacks an essential human need for, for solidarity. And that's partially it's, it's evil, why it's a, such a trickster. Quote, and here's another complaint I bring against John Barleycorn. It is those good fellows that he gets, the fellows with the fire 
and the go in them who have bigness and warmness and the best of all human weaknesses. And John Barleycorn puts out the fire and soddens the agility, and when he does no more, immediately kill them or ma makes manics of them. He coarsens and grossens them, twists and malforms them out of their original goodness and fineness of their nature. So what I get out of this is that it's something beautiful about these men that brings them together to want to share time together and, and share stories and, and kind of commiserate as, as equals. But the glue of that relationship is snuck in by alcohol. And, and that starts to destroy those individuals and those relationships over time. It, it's, a, it's almost like cancerous in the way it, 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 or parasitic is maybe a better term for what it's doing there. It's, it's a parasitic thing that leaves the people who, who once benefited from it the worse off. Now, London again goes to sea, this time as a sealer, and he enters into heavy drinking environment again. This is a, There's a lot of drinking discussed in these sections when he's on the seal boat. And this is, of course, going to come into play when he writes The Sea Wolf, which is about a sealer, and he's going to remember some of his experiences here. But he repeats that his worry that drink causes people to act irrationally when all they're really after is the sociability that drink provides. And this is a common theme in this, this part of the book. Let me find the, the passage I'm looking for. Quote, John Barleycorn, by inhibiting morality, incited to crime. Everywhere I saw men doing drunk what they would never have dreamed of doing sober. And this wasn't the worst of it. It was the penalty that must be paid. Crime was destructive. Saloon mates I drank with, who were good fellows and harmless, sober, did the most violent and lunatic things when they were drunk. And then the police gathered them in and they've, and they vanished from our ken. Sometimes I visited them behind the bars and said goodbyes ere they journeyed across the bay to put on the felon stripes. And time and again I heard it explained, if I hadn't been drunk, it wouldn't have been done. And sometimes under the spell of John Barleycorn, the most frightful things were done, things that shocked even my case-hardened soul. So here again, we, we see the parasitic consequences of, of John Barleycorn. But still, it's... It's that sociability that's so necessary. And it's Jack London never, in the course of the novel, all the bad things he says about alcohol in the course of the novel, he never denies it has this initial attractiveness as a social glue, right? It's a social event. It brings men together. And I say men specifically because he's not talking about women at all here. Now, at the midpoint of this book, Jack London takes work shoveling coal as essentially a scab and there's an essay he writes about being a scab which is very famous work and essay in labor circles and things but i might talk about it in the next episode because there's a few essays at the end of this volume that i need to fit in somewhere but anyways um he, he takes this job shoveling as a scab and he doesn't realize it yet but he, he finally finds out he is a scab. This work does not yet turn him to drink. It lacks social ability. He's kind of isolated, both as a scab and because the work is kind of individual. But later on, we're going to hear stories that really remind us of Martin Eden, who, when he was at work at, you know, with other people, at the end of the day, he wants to just drink. And that's London's going to have the same experience kind of working at a laundry. But if labor is sufficiently odious nature, it will leave the worker with little less to do at the end of the day except drink. So I guess there's not much more to say about the first half of John Barleycorn. It's really a fun read. It's a wonderful introduction to his early events. It's all about his relationship with alcohol, of course. But through this, we get a really good window into his working life. So if you want a full autobiography of his early life, this is a good place to look. It connects the major events of his life to the drinking cultures that he was a part of at different times in his life. 
Now, the message is often repeated and quite straightforward, and that is drink is an unfortunate but necessary part of social life for American men. What draws people to drink is the community of men. And it's not drink, though, that creates the community. It's instead like a parasite on that community. But it is part of the social glue that holds capitalist society together in America. In this way, John Barleycorn is this insidious force hijacking the best of American sociability and camaraderie and, and friendship. And that's where we'll leave it. And if, this, if the rest of the novel didn't have something much more important, radical and interesting to say, I could just stop here and just say that this is kind of all we need to say about John Barleycorn, but it's not. Because the second half of the novel, we're going to, you know, it opens up fully into a whole nother thing. Uh, really, it becomes real philosophy by the end. So for that, you'll have to wait till the next episode, which will be up shortly. It will only be a few days. But thank you again for listening. And I look forward to coming back with the rest of John Barleycorn. It's five o'clock somewhere This lunch break is gonna take all afternoon And after night